Welcome, Pioneers, to Episode 10 of the Wi-Fi Pioneer Podcast. We are your hosts, Colt and Remington, and it is the new year. I want to say Happy New Year to everybody. We've been gone for about two weeks. Uh, we stopped right before Christmas and just took the whole that whole time off to be with family and not really worry about podcasting, since nobody was really worried about listening to podcasts. But my first thing that we're going to jump into is last episode, Remy had asked me what my 2023 plans was, which is a very obvious question you ask somebody right at the end of the year. And I didn't reciprocate. I didn't answer. I, for some reason, I wasn't thinking in time of uh, New Year's. So Remy, tell us what your plans are for 2023, what you've got in store. Yeah. Hey, what's up, guys? Happy New Year. Uh, so uh, I realized I did everything 10 times harder than it needed to be. Uh, I did tech startups, uh, sometimes where there's substantial new tech to be developed, um, you know, major startup capital required or significant startup capital required, get approved product market fit, all that stuff. Man, that was really silly because there is a much, much easier way to do it. Uh, and it's pretty much the natural way, I think, that most people get into business. Uh, but for some reason, well, probably because we've been programmed to focus on venture capital, to focus on all these big name headlines and huge, huge $100 million, $100 billion companies. Uh, but the easy way, the easy, easy way to be sovereign, to be, to make it is to focus on immediate cash flow, focus on business models that have immediate cash flow, no major tech innovations required, no major startup capital, no fundraising roadshows, all that stuff. Uh, and, and obviously a lot of these, uh, tend to be in the service businesses or like, uh, contracting for, for home building or, or recurring service contracts for things like that. Uh, that's what I'm focused on for 2023 because man, it's, it's just right there. And if you're digitally inclined, if you know how to, uh, navigate in cyberspace and, and get to customers and convert customers, uh, that's just, you can do it at 18 years old. You can do it at 16 years old and it's right there for the taking, uh, anybody who's, well adapted to the modern world can do this. You just probably need a little bit of experience on the whatever whatever the skill set is that that you're selling. Maybe a little bit of apprenticeship there, and uh, and you're ready to go. But that's what I'm focused on. Uh, those businesses sell at incredible multiples, and I know we've talked about how silly it is to value things based on multiples alone. But it tells you how quickly you can make any sort of money back if you buy one of these companies, um, and it tells you how quickly they cash flow if you just hold them. Uh, so. Short answer, uh, focusing on businesses with immediate cash flow, no major tech, no startup capital required, uh, and then uh, and scaling those and then finding a way to to spread your chips out enough so that you don't have everything in one basket. That's what I'm doing in 2023. Okay. So you hit on a lot of things there that we've talked about in the past, but I kind of want to sum them up again. So anybody who follows on follows us on Twitter um, and or follows any of the Bowtie accounts on Twitter, by now you've probably seen uh, Bowtie Handyman. If you haven't, go look him up on Twitter. He's always talking about if you're not technically inclined, like internet-based, Wi-Fi money inclined, get into the trades, start a service business. There's it, it is a license to print money right now, and part of it is because nobody's doing it. Nobody's doing physical work, and the people who are doing physical work uh, aren't doing quality work. So if you have any sort of uh, skill in that that area, you can make money real fast. Just because there's a high demand for those, uh, you know, for all the trades and service based uh, industries, and that demand's not going away anytime soon. You're not going to automate uh, a plumber. You're not going to automate a, a, any of these contractors. But there's also the opportunity. You talked about, um, you know, if you can navigate the digital space, you got to be able to do the physical work. But if you can 
manage the advertising, if you can manage the social media or get somebody who's inclined to do that, the, the growth, the, the crossover between the physical trades and digital is is increasing as well. And there's a lot of ways that happens, not just advertising and social media presence, but there's um, you know training courses and how-to videos and, and these things that you know may sound trivial, but they they it all adds up. And there's a lot of ways you can scale your business depending on what it is, your physical business into the digital space. And I, I think you really hit nail it when you said you, you find something that's cash flow positive right out the gate and low tech because low tech means not complicated. Get in there, start making money, then scale it digitally, then scale you know, your employee base, you know, scale your customer base, start scaling the advertising. Um, but right out the door, you can start off with the, you know, the cost of your tools and you know, just a little bit of advertising to get people calling. Um, you know, the, that's it. So it's a lot of opportunity in that space. Yeah, great, great point. Just a quick follow up on that. Um, if you want to do these big banner startups, you know, the ones that grab all the headlines. Okay, great. Uh, but you need to fund it with your own capital. And that can come from one or two places. Either you come from a really well-resourced, well-connected family, uh, or you've got a whole bunch of other businesses that are cash flowing really well. And then you can invest that money into these kinds of startups. If, you, if you're trying to do it the other way around, it's just so incredibly hard and so many things have to go your way. Uh, and you have to convince so many people have no idea what you're doing. It's just not worth it. It's really silly. Uh, so I, I sort of had a, <laughs> a come to Jesus moment about this. I, I just can't believe how much time I wasted trying to convince people who have no idea what I'm doing um, to, to ride along and, uh, and how much value that wasted when I could have easily just put in quite a bit of my own money um, if I had instead spent my time building businesses that cash flow right away. Uh, there's like it, the most massive return. And any, anything I've ever seen is capital in the hands of a highly qualified entrepreneur. And any, any time you separate that equation, like you, you need to source capital from venture funds, you need to source capital from people who don't know you, uh, it, it just immediate destruction, massive destruction of value. Plus you have all the, the complications of, of their particular incentives and how they drive your business away from what it should be. For example, if they need an exit, or they need a particular multiple and they have operational control of your company. Sorry, you're, you're their slave. Um, whereas if it's your company, if it's your money going into it, first of all, you know exactly what needs to be funded. Second of all, uh, you're not at the mercy of these people who don't really have the same aligned interests. But, uh, I guess, yeah. So in summary, um, man, if you're young, get into digital marketing, get into the trades, something like that where you can start cash flowing right away. Um, and, and scale those up. Then go into these big banner startups, the ones that grab all the headlines. Don't try to do it the other way around. That was really silly. <laughs> you know, and that's, I sent out a tweet before, uh, I don't know, a week or two ago about uh, avoiding PE and, and venture capitalism. And, you know, people were interested in why we were wanting to avoid that. And a lot of these, you, know, you, you just hit a lot of it there with people being able to control your company and whatnot, but also a lot of the PE people I'm seeing, the private equity and the venture capitalism, it's not. Like they, you know, people think it's what's going on on that TV show Shark Tank. They think you have this panel of, of highly successful experts that are going to help you scale your business. And, you know, they, they do follow ups on the TV show. I'm not endorsing or unendorsing the show. There's, it works out for a lot of people there. But um, in real life, you know, away from cameras and in the real world, a lot of these guys need this, this private equity. They have money and maybe expertise in a singular field, but they're, they're, they're vampires. They they'll dump money into a business that they know nothing about, hoping to leech off of your 
your expertise and your profits. They're not going to give you anything but startup capital, which granted you need, but that's that's the end of their contribution. And worse is sometimes they might start to get involved and have no know nothing of that subject. And they're they're gonna hinder your business. And because their money started it, you, you're obligated either legally or morally to, to listen to these people. And it just, it becomes a, a massive headache. And it's just, they're, they're, a lot of them are, like I said, they're part of the uh, vampire, I call it the vampire class. People who just suck the blood out of the workers. They're not offering anything positive. They're just, they're just trying to profit off of your labor. Yeah. Nailed it. And uh, obviously there are a few fairly good advisors in the VC world. Uh, I would not call them the majority. Uh, and even in that case, even in the case where they're a good advisor, uh, instead of giving them half a percent, one percent of your company to be an advisor, you are giving them insane returns on this capital. Uh, I mean, like they're looking for forty to one hundred x on their on their investment. I mean, that's just insanely expensive capital. That's not what you need to be paying an advisor for. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah. And that's in the small, uh, that's in the small subset of, of VCs who I consider particularly good, uh, business advisors or know what they're doing in your particular industry. You got to remember for them to be in those, in that position, they either were operators and entrepreneurs who were successful and then decided they just didn't want to have to invest the time, uh, to continue being operators and, and entrepreneurs. Uh, or they were never actually very successful operators or entrepreneurs to begin with. And even in that first case, when they were successful at some point, uh, you know, they weren't very successful or maybe they just got really lucky because if they were actually really good, they are in the position to be like an Elon Musk, right? They have insane funding behind them. If they're highly competent, they could build these crazy world-changing companies, but they're not. They're running a VC fund where they just stand back and look over your shoulder. So that selection bias tells you something. It tells you that they probably aren't very good operators or entrepreneurs. So does their advice work? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it's valuable, but you got to remember they're, they're, they're kind of like, uh, you know, teachers in the school system, right? They didn't, they they didn't go to, on to be elite professionals in their field. They kind of dropped out at some point along the way. So just keep that in mind. They're not, they're not end all be all. They're not the only source of capital. They're the last source of capital. They're the very last source of capital because they're only valuing a tiny slice of your company. The financial value of it is wasting a whole bunch of the other value of your company. Uh, so if we can go on in, in another time about how to value all the, the specific pieces of your company aside from the financial component, uh, but they are only going to pay attention to the financial component. Same with PE. Uh, and they rarely add value. Uh, so just keep that in mind. They are a last source of capital. If you need them, great. If that's what it takes to make the idea take flight, okay, fine. But just know they're the last source of capital. And so that being said, if you are at that last point and you, you know, you've you've exhausted every other means, and now you are at your last source. How do you structure a deal with a venture capitalist or a PE firm? How do you how do you structure it best to your advantage so as not to get uh, screwed or get taken over by a VC or a PE firm? And that's a that's a great question. Uh, I, I could talk about a few things, but uh, obviously the the most important thing I would say first is if you're seeking one of these guys, uh, you know, there's a couple reasons to seek them. One is the money. Two is, two is the, uh, to be backed by a specific name, right? There's, there's branding that occurs with that, that you've been vetted, that they believe in you, all that stuff. Uh, and that, that has value, but that doesn't have enough value to give them 20, 40, 60% of your capital stack. Uh, so how do you engage with them in a way that's productive? First of all, 
don't come to them needing them. <laughs> come to them with an opportunity to fill in the last missing gap in your in your talent set, which is maybe you need a lot of deal structuring expertise, which they're good at. They are very good at that. And they're good at anticipating how to prepare you for the next stage of funding. That's what keeps them alive. Um, or at least that's what keeps their fund alive. Fund alive is, is helping their companies proceed through the funding uh, gates. Um, but how do you, how do you engage with them in a way that's, that's valuable and worthwhile uh, and minimizes the amount of dilution you're going to get in your company? Well, first of all, VCs have a different investment thesis. They are looking for big narratives. They're looking for moonshots. Uh, they're looking for something that really grabs the attention of their LPs and sets them apart. And they may be only one company away from that, meaning they may be looking for that one company that makes their name as a fund. So they get massive FOMO. They want to find a particular company that they can hang their hat on when it's a big win. And they only need to find one, right? They can have like one out of every five or one out of every 10 actually be big wins and they can make out like bandits, just their business model. So they are looking for big opportunities. They don't want to see uh, a relatively de-risked business. They want to see big, big risks so that they can justify major, major multiples on their returns. Uh, and they want to see big total addressable market, all that stuff. That's very different than a PE firm. PE firms are literally just, uh, just seasoning your company until it's big enough to, to uh, send off to another investor. So a lot of times they'll just conglomerate these companies, uh, which is just accumulating different streams of cash flows. And then through that process, you've got a bigger, more stable company um, that has, that earns an, a higher multiple in the capital markets. So if your company is valued at, I don't know, five times EBITDA, uh, a PE firm will grab it and then, and then season it until it's at 10 times EBITDA or eight times EBITDA. And so even if they don't increase the profits, uh, they can season it to a point where they make a big return on the EBITDA multiple and they want to hold it for, you know, five, maybe 10 years. Uh, and then they're going to sell it on to the next investor. Um, and the other thing that they do is uh, they essentially just hold the company through its ballistic trajectory. And when I say ballistic, I mean that most of the growth uh, and the trajectory has already been predetermined, meaning most of the most of the force that got it airborne uh has been applied and now it's just continuing upward and draining off uh, velocity. Uh, but they will ride that upward trajectory to its apex and then they will sell it on to somebody else. So that's, that's essentially what they do is they ride the increase in EBITDA uh, through that upward trajectory. And then they graduate to different levels of EBITDA multiples and valuation. And that's how they get these massive returns that's, I mean, it's a killer business model because they don't really have to do anything. In fact, the reason that they're going to uh, invest is they are looking for a company that's got such solid trajectory and growth that any idiot can run it. They are not looking to bet on a specific entrepreneur. So that's very different than venture capitalists. Venture capitalists are betting on the specific entrepreneur and, and rarely on the specific business opportunity because they know you're going to pivot so frequently. That was a whole lot of information. But quick rundown of, of how to assess the field of sophisticated funds and what they have to offer you as a tech startup or, you know, some other kind of startup. No, that's quite a lot of information to digest there, but it'll uh, definitely make for some good clips and we'll follow up in the next episode with questions that people have coming out of it. Um, probably, I'll probably even make some tweet threads based on that to see, if, uh, to see what kind of questions people have and that'll feed into the next episode for sure. Um, no, really good. So 
I'm going to, unless you have anything to add on the PE venture capital front, I'm just going to kind of switch over to the last two weeks. You've sent me a whole bunch of text messages of just different random thoughts. I'm going to kind of just guide this podcast through those, those thoughts. So we're going to, for the listener, we're going to do some kind of hard turns here and there. We're not going to flow smoothly from topics because we have so many things that popped up that I, that are worth talking about. So going to the next one, the value of having good administrator working for you and how admin tasks, they're so important and they take up so much of your time, but they're not the money-making tasks there. It's like, if you don't do the admin right, you lose money, but you don't make money off the admin. It's to stop you from losing money is the, the importance of admin. And that's where a good administrator is so valuable because it keeps you focused on the money-making aspect of the business while they're doing all the, the leech work that, uh, the, the, they call it the leech work or the drag work, everything that stops you from making money, everything that's a drag on you being productive. Um, so tell me, tell me your, your process of finding good administrators. What makes you trust them, somebody in this space? Uh, great question and great lead in. Uh, certainly there's one aspect, which is just the, uh, the specialization. So you, you focus on making money tasks. You have an admin focus on the leech tasks, as you call it. Uh, but the other thing to keep in mind is that those tasks, they do not mix. They mix like oil and water. Uh, so especially for me personally, if I've got admin tasks throughout the day and I've got really high value driving profit tasks, uh, I can get hardly, I, I can't, I can't get any of both done. I can decide one or the other, but once you start on those admin tasks and a lot of them end up going backwards, meaning when you start the task, you run into some problem and then to solve that problem, you have to solve something else and then to solve something else and then to solve something else, particularly with all these software companies. I just can't tell you how often I'll start a task and their software fails or something doesn't work. And then they reroute me to a, a sales rep who needs to set up a call to talk about something. I'm like, no, dude, I already authorized what I wanted to do. Let's just get it done. So that's, that's a quick rundown of how I think about admin tasks. They just, you have to know there's a talent to getting them done quickly and you have to be very familiar with the systems and you have to navigate all their stupid tricks. Uh, and so if you're, if you're half your brain is thinking about how you're going to run this sales call um, and how to pitch this particular, I don't know, strategic move for the business uh, or something like that. And you're dealing with these admin tasks. You're going to be so angry at the end of these admin tasks for having wasted a really productive day an otherwise really productive day that now you can't take that call because you're just going to blow it. <laughs> so you could quickly go backwards. Now, the second part of your question, which was how do you find a high trust admin? That's the trick, man. I, uh, I mean, there are virtual assistants, but there's a lot of information you don't want leaving or that you don't know if you can trust somebody with. Um, I occasionally hire virtual assistants. I wouldn't say I have a, a routine virtual assistant, um, but I do have a couple people that I really trust to take care of admin tasks. And that makes all the difference in the world. The thing that I always see people underestimate is how valuable a high trust admin is for running a business. Um, it's, it directly leverages your time. So if you're an executive, you know, what's the hourly rate of your, of your time when you're really kicking butt, you know, and to assess this, I think of like a, like a Barry Bonds analogy. If you're Barry Bonds, um, you know, out of a day of 24 hours, uh, 23 hours and 50 minutes of it aren't really generating any value. You're generating all of your value in about 10 minutes of that day, specifically when he's at that, right? If you're an executive, it's a similar kind of payoff distribution for your time. A very, very small fraction of your time drives a tremendous amount of the value. So focus on those tasks. Don't let anything interfere with them. 
Uh, and that's, that's how you leverage a virtual assistant or a high trust assistant is because then you can, you can focus on just the enormous wins and not get bogged down in everything else. So the big mistake I see people make is they don't pay their admin well, find a good admin, pay them incredibly well. They directly leverage your time. I would pay, I would pay a great admin two, 300 K a year. Uh, if, if that means I can now focus on things that make us five to 10 million, that's a steal. I would even pay them more. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's kind of yeah. how I think about admins. Well, and you know, exactly right. I agree with everything you said, but I want people to understand that if you're in the owner operator phase of your business, whether Wi-Fi or IRL, and you're, you know, we're talking, you know, you just said paying somebody 200,000 a year and we're, a lot of people are in that I'm still making 20,000 a year in my business. So they're doing the admin themselves. Um, it scales, right? All of this is scalable. You'll, you'll see a lot of people on Twitter uh, in the digital space talking about hiring a VC to do your TikTok ads or doing, you know, or not a VC, a VA to do your uh, TikTok ads or your social media postings, things of this nature. And a lot of this, you, you're exporting to third world countries, so to, to people who happen to speak English, but will work for four bucks an hour effectively. So you can offload a lot of work cheaply, but even if you're not at that point yet, or if your work, your admin work is something that's too sensitive to, to farm out online. Uh, have you ever listened to the Jocko podcast? Uh, you know, he always, he's always saying discipline, discipline equals freedom. When you're in the okay. startup of your business, that, that phrase, I mean, you, you write that on your wall and I'm not one of those affirmation type people, but write that on your wall. Discipline equals freedom. Because if you're tackling your admin tasks as they happen throughout the day, it's going to be exactly like you described, where you're going to be so bogged down with some, you know, arguing with a bank over money or some SaaS company because their software is not working right. And then you're, you're not gonna be able to focus on your actual work, structure your day to maximize productivity and structure your admin tasks, whether it's daily, weekly, like I'll give you a personal example. Um, my day starts at 5am. I get up, drink a big glass of water to rehydrate. And then I head to the gym and I do my normal workout followed by getting on the treadmill, the elliptical, whatever. And I do either cardio or walk and I get minimum 30 minutes of moving my legs. Uh, I would do this outdoors, except where I'm at, there's two feet of snow on the ground and uh, about six inches of compacted snow on the road. So I literally cannot walk down the road. But point is 30 minutes a day of walking before I sit down at a computer. The walking, the blood flow gets my brain working. Admin tasks, tasks I leave to the end of the day because my most creative time is right after that walk. And that's when I can do my best writing, whether it be a Twitter thread or editing of one of my wife's books or writing my own book or my next piece of writing, whatever I'm doing, um, that's, that manages my creativity. I leave the admin, unless it's an emergency, I leave the admin to the end of the day. Cause even if my creativity is exhausted, argue, I don't need creativity to argue with a SaaS company. I don't need creativity to be snarky in an email. I don't need creativity to, to do that. So I schedule my admin after all the money-making work is done. And that, that helps tremendously. Yeah, definitely don't want to waste your uh, patience and creativity and problem solving on a stupid call with a with a SaaS AE or a or a customer service rep. <laughs> like at that point, I'm just telling them what they need to get done. <laughs> yeah, really. So I've got an ongoing tweet that I update every couple of weeks about how to deal with people in the 2020s. But he uh, could kind of, kind of a tangent here, but constant thing we talk about is the competency crisis. Everybody you're dealing with at the other end is incompetent. So here's a couple things 
and a couple of phrases to help you get through uh, dealing with incompetence on the uh, other end. One of them being never send two questions in the same email or text. Always send one question at a time. The person at the other end is not capable of reading two questions and answering ever. Uh, that's a big one. Another thing is, oh God, you sent actually, you showed me a, a copy of your email the other day about how you deal with some of these people. Some of the snarky things you say. <laughs> sometimes those Same. aren't, uh, sometimes those aren't entirely, uh, uh, meant to be that way. They just come out that way at the end of the day when I'm yeah. just like, you gotta it's be kidding something me. to the effect of like, I need you to do your job. I'm not doing your job for you. Oh but, yeah. Uh, yeah. How many times you get, you get some sort of critical SAS failure and, uh, and you put in a support ticket to the company and, and then they come back and ask you all these questions. Hey, uh, we need you to help us tell us all these things about it. And I'm like, bro, I'll, I'll be happy to do that as soon as you do my job for me. Cause right now this is your job and I'm paying you to do it. So, so get off your ass and do something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, when, when I was in the military, we had a phrase of it's, uh, it was a joke, but it really wasn't because dealing with all the admin people in the military, it's, it's not my job to do my job. I always found that if I had to do something, I had to, if I needed something done by an admin person, I had to come to them with the work done and completed, and then they would put their signature on. Uh, there was no way of actually getting people to do their job themselves. Uh, and that's not just military. That's the whole corporate world, apparently, and especially the, the software and SaaS world is not my job to do my job. Yeah. And everything's in constant beta now, right? So uh, typically the way to resolve that situation is if you have an unstable product or an inferior product um, that you're not willing to put your brand on yet. You offer your customers a discount. And this is one of the few times when I do advocate giving a discount. However, that just doesn't happen anymore. You're just paying the same amount for shitty software. And so you're you're constantly what they're experimenting on and you're paying for dog shit. Yeah, and that is God, that is so frustrating. Because they never they never finish the product. I mean, hell, take the biggest example, Microsoft. In twenty five, almost thirty years, I mean every Every time they roll out a new update, it's worse than the last operating system. It takes a year to work all the damn kinks out, and it's never quite right. I mean, they've had 30 years of updates to make it a smooth system, and it's just the most popular system. How is it possible that you can make an update to your software and everything in the previous version doesn't work? Remember the disastrous, uh, what was it, uh, Microsoft 10 or X? the hell they, they called it. it was it was wild it was a long time ago in uh, computer terms but it was so bad everybody just reverted back to the old system because it, it took them it was it was the worst rollout i think they ever had it took over a year to, to work all the the kinks out of it but i mean shouldn't that be the most obvious you're updating your software shouldn't it be compatible with the version you're currently running and they've never they've never been able to do that never once and yet they continue to dominate the market how the hell is that possible yeah, I think we're going to very quickly come to a time when you really have to assess the culture of each company to know whether it's worth using their product because you just can't take the risk on shitty software anymore. It's too centralized, it's too important, and has too many critical tasks in it that you can't outsource to kittles and, and woke tards, right? So you have to, you have to vet the company and their culture and they've got to be based. Like they've got to be, they've got to have their head on, screwed on right. And, uh, and it's, it's just too much of a risk to say, Oh, this looks like a cool product. I like it. And then you get onboarded and then you're stuck. As we've talked about, you're building on their, on their land. You're stuck with them. And then it turns out they're actually terrible at building software. You just can't take that risk anymore. So you really, really have to vet these companies, vet their internal uh, cultures. And you're betting that that culture is going to persist and it's not going to get captured by the woke state. Yeah. And that's, 
this should be the wake up call to the competent software engineers. How many times we have to say this with just changing the uh, industry, but if you're competent in software engineering, develop software that people can use and not have to maintain themselves. If you can just make a software that works and then make updates that work and stay ahead of those updates, that's it. You just dominated the entire industry. Why is this so hard? And I mean, you can replace the word software with with anything at this point. This is just the way this whole country is going, where competency is not the norm anymore. But if you are competent, build. People will come to you and they will throw money at you endlessly because it's worth not having to deal with the uh, the headache of, of failing software and failing products. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, I just had a, a specific situation I can mention. That, sorry about that. I mean, it cut you off, but uh, <laughs> I... Even regardless of the software, just the people who interact with you, uh, so the, the people who are, you know, a lot of times called uh, customer success reps or whatever, uh, they've been <clears throat> they've been handed the account to manage uh, to make sure that you can use their software successfully. And I have yet to run into a situation where this these people have been valuable. Uh, <laughs> for case in point, uh, I was just doing. Um, I, we we uh, onboarded with a, a SaaS company a few weeks ago. Had to do an integration between their product and and our accounting software. And the customer success rep who guided me through it uh, had never done it before. Uh, so he instead of making that recognition and then pulling on you know some subject matter expert to make sure that the the integration went right, he just kind of fumbled through it. Uh, and he'd have to pull up the documentation every now and then and be like, "Oh, I don't know what this is. Don't know what this is." We get through it and turns out he didn't do anything right. Didn't do anything right. So now it's on me. Uh, now I have to stop what I'm doing. In addition to the interruption of that freaking call that's obnoxious to do the, the integration. Like, why can't he do the integration for me? That should be a service they offer. Um, <laughs> now I have to go learn how to do the integration, pile through all the documentation. And it wasn't, it wasn't straightforward. Uh, and it cost me a shit ton of time. Incredibly infuriating. But just go back to the mentality of this customer success rep. He's getting on the call just being like, all right, well, I showed up for work today. That's that's my contribution. Uh, instead of being like, hey, uh, this guy's time is valuable. I don't know how to do this yet, or I haven't done it successfully. So I'm going to make sure that I have the right resources on the call to do it successfully. Like just that basic recognition doesn't exist anymore. That's You're at the mercy of these SaaS companies and their shitty, shitty internal management. So don't... It, there's a whole art now to, to getting what you need out of a SaaS company. For example, typically what I do is I make sure I have a point of contact whose paycheck directly depends on my staying as a customer. And then he's or she is my is my liaison to everybody in the company. And, and obviously this is typically called like an account executive or something. But you'd be surprised how little account executives do anymore. Most of them are just order takers. Most of them are sitting there and the the deal has been teed up already because they're the the primary company you have to use in this particular SaaS space. So you don't really have an option to go around them. And and now they they get paid the silly commission for for you showing up, right? Uh, when they didn't do anything. But still, they're getting a commission based on your account persisting. And so they actually will respond to your needs and then they can coordinate the resources inside the company to get your situation resolved. I rarely make any progress with customer support tickets, only on brand new SaaS companies that are still clamoring for market share. Otherwise, it's just a total crapshoot. So maybe a little tip there. If you're, it's really valuable. Oh, maybe this is a bigger theme in the, in the age of atomization of relationships and, and just digital to digital interactions. 
uh, have relationships, have people at the company who actually will pick up the phone for you, who actually will go to bat for you, uh, make sure they have the right incentives, develop those relationships, maintain them. They're pretty sticky. Like if you're, if you're commission-based rep, you're not going to jump companies every six months. If you're a customer success rep, you can, <laughs> but if you're an AE, you've got to, you've got to put a couple years in at the company. So that person is going to be around for a while. That's your advocate within the company. Nice. You just made me think of two things there. The first thing later on, we're going to have to make a ongoing tweet that we add to about useless titles, all the titles that indicate that the person that you're talking to has no value at the company and that you need to get off the phone with them and get on the phone with somebody else. Um, and it's, that's going to be a constantly ongoing list because those the names change all the time. But, um, you know, the word executive speaks to some kind of authority and competency, but it could just be another word for make work uh, incompetent vampire or kiddled. So we're definitely going to start that. Uh, be on the lookout for that tweet and we'll, we'll keep it rolling as we update uh, the terminology. Second thing is, you know, you mentioned that you're on the phone with a guy who basically tr- treats showing up to work as the accomplishment of his job. Um, if you go back, if you roll back about five years ago is when the surveys started coming out that college students thought that they should get a B for showing up to class, not for scoring high on tests, not for writing essays and doing papers and, and doing their actual, you know, their, their job as a college student, not for actually doing the research and the work and, and passing the exams, just showing up was enough to give a B. And I don't know where the hell that mentality came from, you know, Everybody blames that everybody got a trophy generation and maybe it's downstream of that, but it was definitely a cultural change to have an entire generation of college kids showing up and saying, yeah, I'm here. Give me a B. Well, what do you expect when they get out into the workforce? If they think that showing up to school is enough to give them a a grade, then showing up to work, you don't have to do your job. You just have to show up and I should get a paycheck. Right. And that's the mindset now. That's, that's the kittle to, you know, that the time timeline tracks, you know, the people who are in college starting college five years ago have now graduated or into the workforce. So, um, man, look at the kids that are in college today to know what we're going to disaster. We're going to have five years from now. It's actually a pretty easy, pretty easy prediction at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the good news is there are some people working on this problem, which is how do you find companies with good cultures, with good, reliable cultures that will build quality processes and operations? And uh, the one that I can particularly point to is a guy named Nate Fisher, and uh, he has a business partner. I just His um, name slipped my mind at the moment, but the company is called, or the organization is called New Founding. And basically what they do is they are a, a gathering point for uh, people who know how to run businesses and aren't going to submit to the woke state and the woke tards. Um, and they, they call these grounded organizations, or you could also call them based organizations, things like that. Uh, and so it's a talent network, both on the employee side and then on the, on the company side. Uh, and I imagine at some point, you know, you'll be, you'll be able to use their data as a way to, to source um, service partners or SaaS companies or things like that. But I think it's pretty new, uh, but there, there is hope on the horizon for, for finding some way to, to rapidly sort through all the crap and find other companies that are worth interacting with. Yeah. And that's, that's going to be what's needed. And it's good to have some kind of industry leader starting into that. Um, you made me, uh, remind me of a new app that's come out, uh, called public square and the idea behind it. Uh, I, I haven't used it. I just heard about it, you know, 
a week or so ago. But the the idea behind Public Square is that all the non woke businesses, you know, they they come together, they register on this app, and they say, yeah, like if you come in here without a mask, we're not going to throw you out. If you're wearing an American flag on your shirt, we're not going to have a commie meltdown. Like these are non woke businesses say advertising the fact saying we're not woke. So if you're going to go to a, another city or something and you want to go to a restaurant where you know that the waiter's not going to spit in your food because you're wearing a MAGA hat or whatever else, it's, you know, they're starting to organize and list in this manner. Uh, I don't get any endorsements from them. We're not, we're not big enough to get endorsements yet, guys. Mm-hmm. So just, just know that. But the, the idea, that's the idea of public, the public square app. It would make sense then that larger businesses will come together and say, Hey, um, you know, business is bigger than the small business mom and pop stop short uh, places, but the, the multi-million dollar and growing companies are going to come together and say, we need competency. We want to work with more competency and we're not going to hire Kittle. So that absolutely makes sense. So I'll definitely, um, I'll go check out Nate Fisher and what he's building as well. That's really good news. Uh, you know, you, you can only have this kind of failure for so long before people finally push back and it's, we're, we're seeing it. Um, that's why I'm optimistic for the future. I'm pessimistic for the very near future, right? The 2020s are going to be a disaster. But what comes out the other end is going to be great because we'll be past this wokeness by that point. Like, wokeness can't survive. It's a cancer. It's going to destroy itself. The kiddults, they're, you know, they're going to drift off into oblivion. Everybody with a work ethic and competency, we're going to rise to the top. We're going to find each other. We're going to keep making partnerships. And by the 2030s, we're going to see... Uh, a launching point in this country that's going to make the, the 1940s and 50s look like a block of, look like nothing. You know, we're going to, we're going to have a great, great future. Yeah. I think one of the things that's really going in our, our favor is the move towards smaller and smaller businesses. Uh, so I think we, uh, I'll go on a limb here and say, I think we've passed peak centralization and centralization was really important for defeating other large evil centralized entities. <laughs> think like, you know, World War One, World War Two, that kind of stuff. These are huge centralized entities that go to go to war with each other, battle each other, and you just have to have the largest, most capable um, entity to defeat the other ones, right? But that doesn't mean that centralization is a good thing. It was just a necessary evil. But now that we have all these uh, communication technologies, networking technologies that allow us to organize at a small scale, we can effectively build small scale. And the the particular thing I want to point to is that. Large corporations are built to not need talent. They're built to have cogs in a machine. That's how they scale, right? It's as you build a business, as you proceed through 2 million EBITDA, 5 million EBITDA, 10 million EBITDA, 20 million EBITDA, 50 million EBITDA, 100 million, you're building systems so that robots can run it. You're building systems that don't require talent. Uh, as Warren Buffett says, he likes to build a great business or buy, likes to buy a great business that any idiot can run because sooner or later one will. Uh, that's, that's what centralized, big centralized companies are about. They might have one or two key people at the top, a few. Um, but for the most part, they are all about attracting robots and putting robots to work. And so now that we're able to organize at smaller and smaller scales and be effective at smaller and smaller scales, you're going to see talent really matter again. And I mean, that's what's happening right now is, is basically most of the talent is going on strike and leaving these big companies and now revealing that the rest of the company was a complete waste. Uh, and that's what we're running into all the time. These people are going to small companies. They get paid really well. They enjoy their life at small companies. They can do meaningful work where they see the results of their actions. Uh, and so that process is directly going to drive great results. We just have uh, you know, a, a lot of growing pains to get there. 
Yeah, I mean, we're basically in a new industrial revolution here. Um, I mean, if you think about it, you, you right, rewind 100 years, 150 years, the industrial revolution really gave birth to the middle class over, you know, it took a couple of decades to get rolling, but it's what allowed a middle, there was no middle class prior to 1850s, right? I mean, there wasn't even, even in the 1800s, there really was no middle class. That That's a largely a 20th century invention, but, you know, people were just poor and they just worked in shit conditions and then died. The industrial revolution came along and it allowed for such scaling of wealth. The, the thing was, it, it's a matter of perception, right? We look at the factory work now for what it is. Imagine 100, 150 years ago, that was an improvement over the working conditions you had over the company towns and the, the basically, you know, we went from uh, cor- you know, it was a corporate slavery in a, in a large way. You were never out of debt of the company in the corporate towns and stuff. But the, the nine to five work schedule was a vast improvement over the 70 hour work week. You went from uh, 70 hours to 40 hours and you you know, you're able, actually able to afford the products you were making off the assembly line. This was a huge step up. But then you you have five generations now of factory work. And what happened is it was no longer an exit strategy from poverty. It became a it, just a form of control. You know, the, the entire school system was changed to fit the factory model. And, the, you know, the, the 1900s was largely up until the very end was, was factory work. And that's what gave birth to the American middle class. But it also it stifled growth. And now what we're seeing is on the back end of that, the Internet and Wi-Fi money and small business availability is now making it possible for the real uh, creators and the innovators to leave that corporate factory setting, whether it's a you know computer based factory, you know, corporate world or actual factories. You know, that's kind of synonymous at this point. And. You know, people, the, the truly creative people need to exit that environment and start their own business. This is an opportunity that never existed in history. You know, you, the further back you go in history, the real innovators could never succeed. It was just there was no system in place for them. Now it's there. And it's it's time to leave that middle class mindset and that that nine to five mindset into a build your own business mindset, because that is is this is this was not available to our ancestors it's available to us now and you've got to seize it, it this is it's unprecedented yeah as we move away from a system where there are centralized entities governments telling you what is true and what is not true where there's organizations you know making sure that your food is safe where your water is safe um, that your town is safe uh, we're moving away from those systems and so a lot more reliance on the individual you have to take a lot of responsibility for the outcomes in your life. Uh, and you have to know a lot of different skills. Um, one of the things that I've noticed happens a lot when these, in these unstructured chaotic environments is that you have to be really, really good at assessing talent. And, um, this is a recurring theme through our podcast. Something just came to mind that, uh, I keep running into every single week, uh, which is, uh, really, really important for, for succeeding in any sort of new startup or business. Uh, where you're sourcing outside talent, you have particular roles at the company that you need to you need complementary skills on. Uh, and that that question is how to differentiate between you know these scammers and charlatans and hacks, uh, and and say a quality entrepreneur. Um, and particularly, I'm thinking of situations where people are trying really hard things and they might be failing initially, but are still doing quality things uh, that that are worth helping out with. Uh, how do you differentiate between those people and the hacks that are just going around mooching off everybody and scamming one person after another? Uh, one is in, in any system where there are momentary interactions that never repeat. So think of like, 
you you meet somebody and there may be a transaction involved, but you never run into that person again. I mean, that system is going to be inherently uh, extractive. It's going to be inherently scammy um, because your brand doesn't matter. You don't need a brand. So uh, one is source people from environments where there's a lot of repercussions for for bad actors. If there's a brand you build, a personal brand you build that follows you around. Um, but then there are a few other things that that you can assess as you're going through exercises with these people, as you're solving problems, you're building businesses. One is um, quality people have this tendency to do daily compounding and problem solving. They will take the progress from the day before and they will build on it and they won't have major setbacks. Or if they do have a major setback, it will be rare. But you will see this daily compounding process where it's not just linear, it's compounding. And they know how to put each brick in the right place each day. Every day they're making solid, visible progress. And within a month or two, you look back and you're like, holy cow, that thing's almost built. Uh, so that's one That's one factor. I know it sounds obvious when we're just talking about it, but you'd be surprised how hard it is to perceive that unless you're specifically paying attention to it because you're just focused on daily tasks, but you have to measure the progress and get good at measuring the progress. The second is that quality people will demonstrate reciprocity. They won't always expect you to be contributing. Hey, there may be times in any startup where there's going to be things demanded of everybody, right? It's all hands on deck and and you have a particular skill set that comes in handy at that time and you're carrying the day. It happens all the time. And then the next day or the next week, somebody else is carrying the company. Uh, those things happen. Um, but if you're constantly seeing a situation where the owner or your business partner is always like, oh, we, you know, you just need to, you know, you need to ante up today. Like we all, we all have to provide our, our share. And then there's never any reciprocity back that tells you that person's a scammer. Uh, and then the third thing is I've seen this frequently is we don't have the resources to pay you. So, um, but when we succeed, you know, you'll have a spot on the team. You'll be a key member on the team. <laughs> and that's, that's the straight up scam. In other words, your work for your reward for the work that you've done is the opportunity to do more work for them that hopefully you'll get a pay, paid a wage for in the future. Uh, that's, I mean, that's an even bigger scam or slavery than, than being a wage cuck, direct, direct scam. And here's the thing. People will try this to see if they can get away with it. Even if they're okay with paying you now, this is one of the marks of, you know, coming from the underworld is you're so accustomed to having to fight for everything because people are always trying to steal what you've earned. Man, that's, you just had me, uh, give a, give a good flashback to my days when I was enlisted because we we have a joke in the army, hard work will be rewarded with more hard work. Once you show your, sorry, when you're a private or a specialist and you show your sergeant that you're willing to work your ass off at the drop of a hat because he needs it, guess who he's going to every single time he needs work. And all the lazy shitbags, are they lazy shitbags or are they just smarter than you? Because they never volunteer for work. The work they do is half-assed. And, you know, after a few months, nobody asks them for do anything. So they just get to cruise through their entire enlistment, never doing any hard work because you know, they can't be relied upon. Well, you know, that's that's exactly what you just described with, uh, you know, you work for me for now for free. And later you'll get the opportunity to work, uh, work for me harder, you know, probably for free still. And it just oh, that just reminded me of my enlisted days. Like, <laughs> anyways, I, I actually just ran into an entrepreneur that I've known for quite a while who has a really good perspective on this now. And, and he self-admittedly has come 180 on it. Initially, when he was starting startups that were cash flow constrained, he'd be like, hey, we all need to contribute. This is a team effort. We need to make it happen. 
and, uh, and, you know, we're going to take some lumps along the way and we're going to, we're going to, uh, have to ante up, right? Um, he now thinks the exact opposite. He says, if I can't pay people what they're worth, uh, then the business is not viable and it's not worth it. Now, yeah, are there going to be some companies that would have been great companies that don't get started because of that? Sure. But you've just, you've now a couple of things happen there. One, you've cut out most of the time wasting enterprises that you would have launched that would have failed because they weren't actually viable and they weren't viable because they didn't actually assess a problem or address a problem that was valuable enough to pay you to do it right off the bat. Two is you're attracting a much better talent set by doing this. And that directly impacts your ability to be successful. That directly drives your success because you've sorted out, um, you, you, you now can go to quality people and say, here's what it is. Do you want to be a part of it? And they can jump in. They don't have to suddenly be like, well, is this a scam? I don't know. How much time should I invest in figuring out if it's a scam? I don't know. Uh, that whole process is incredibly destructive to startups uh, and the, the magic kind of founder genesis moments of startups. So just by saying, hey, we're going to pay you what you need to participate and we're going to find a way to do that. That process, as opposed to everybody needs to contribute and then we'll, you know, we'll find a way to make it right at the end, uh, is, is so incredibly valuable for starting startups. And I know that <laughs> I started off this podcast saying, don't do tech startups until you've got a shit ton of money in your pocket. Um, I'm telling you now, this is a big reason why, because that first initial hurdle is so difficult to get over. Um, that if you've got good cash flow, uh, all of a sudden, most of these problems that kill good companies or attract the wrong talent to companies or become incredibly wasteful and and then derail your progress when you're at a, a full sprint and a race to beat your competitors, these things all get solved. When you've got really good, reliable cash flow that it's at your hands, that's under your control, you can pay the right people what they're worth and everything takes off. Yeah. I mean, cash is king. <laughs> it's... It's not that you need money. It's not that money solves all your problems, but you can't solve real problems without money. It's it's just a vital vital thing, um, you know. And that cash flow. Sorry, I'm, I'm just repeating everything you said there. It's totally correct. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's the difference between if you were uh, what's that saying in aviation? Nothing worse than um, uh, or nothing more useless than than fuel behind you, altitude above you, and and airspeed not in the bank or something like that. Um, yeah. It's yeah. trying to start startups, like high growth startups, tech startups, uh, without lots of good cash flow from some other source is the same as flying around five feet off the ground right at your stall speed. Uh, good luck, right? <laughs> It'll take forever yeah. to get anywhere and any tree you're going to run into. So bank up that altitude, that airspeed uh, and fuel in your tank before you start an enterprise like this. And you'll notice that a lot of the guys who you see as overnight success stories in these big companies, they had plenty of cash flow options. That part just isn't publicized. Uh, and that, that makes all the difference in cutting your probability of failure from 80 or 90% to 10 or 20%. And then you still have the tremendous upside. That's the thing that I think is most people don't understand about these trades and local service-based businesses is one, not only are a lot of your competitors not that, uh, you know, they're, they're behind the times, right? You can beat them at marketing. You can beat them at operations. You can beat them with your tech stack. But two is uh, that a lot of these companies have, uh, have probabilities of success that are 10 times what you would with a startup. Uh, and all you're doing is scaling an existing operation. They found what works. All you're doing is adding a little extra oomph 
taking away a few a few uh, obstacles for them. And now you can you can scale a business that was say two or three million dollars in value to twelve million dollars in value, and you've directly captured that nine million dollars in value addition uh, versus starting I don't know five startups and finally on the fifth one when it takes you know you're fifteen to twenty years into this process the fifth one you finally make some money but because you've had to sell so much of the company so dearly to a VC firm you walk away after five or 10 years with eh, 10 or $20 million. And, <laughs> and that's if you get to walk away. If you're a key person at that company, good luck walking away. Uh, so the process is just, it's made to make you a slave to the venture capitalists. Don't fall for it. Make yourself sovereign beforehand. Then you can play that game and you can play it on your terms. Yeah. You know, and now that I've had a chance to kind of wrap my mind around this, when my wife and I bought our first, uh, our first business, we we cash um, it, it was cash flow pro- positive pretty much right out the gate, but just with a low amount. But we were both working full time when we purchased it, so the time between when we bought it and the, the first week or two when it took uh, took for money to start rolling in, not that two weeks is a big deal, but we had between the two of us at our full time jobs, we had enough money to cover the rents and the utilities and insurance until the money started coming in. That business was pretty much cash flow positive right away, but we had enough money from our other work to fund it if we needed more time, if it was going to take two or three months. That one was positive. From there, we went and bought our uh, our pet in, our pet service industry business. And between the full-time job we had and the other, uh, the first business we bought, there was enough money to cash flow uh, the mortgage if we needed to. Um we again, that was a cash flow positive business, but we um, it wasn't really anything to worry about. We had cash flow to back it, and then to start doing uh, uh, renovations and new investments into the business. So cash flow again was king. Now fast forward to where uh, we started our online our Wi Fi business. Uh, my wife's writing. We cash flowed the beginning of that as well before she started making a profit on that because we had to pay for editors. We had to pay for book covers. We had to pay for certain advertising. And we we put money, we were able to put money into it initially to get a good jump start versus starting at zero. Uh, any of these businesses could have grown on their own, but having that cash flow coming in from a different source helped us tremendously to speed the process along. So yeah, cash flow is definitely going to help you out. The more you, the, the, your ability to fund something extra uh, is going to help. Now, that's not a requirement, right? You, you can start a business from zero and have it cash flow right away is, is the ideal world. But if you are coming into, if your your business is a side business and you have a full-time job and you can help push it along, not support the business, but push it, accelerate things and accelerate the invest, uh, investment, that cash flow is going to be tremendous. And it's just, it's going to pay you dividends versus going to somebody else and paying them dividends. For sure. And the scarce resource in small companies is talented, driven, resourceful, creative entrepreneurs, not the capital. There's capital everywhere looking for these people. Uh, the capital is just terrible at finding these people because you have this problem where uh, the, the skill that you need to possess to assess the talent is the very thing that you're looking for. Um, and so, and so it's, I, I can't remember what the name of that is. Is it, uh, Dunning Kruger or something? I don't know. Anyway, um, it's something to the effect of the people who are making these capital decisions don't possess the skills that they're trying to find. And so they don't know how to judge it or they're terrible at judging it, or they just have to see 
they have to see the actual performance before they recognize the talent. And so that entire process is just incredibly costly and destructive to an early company where your time as the entrepreneur is insanely valuable. Just, just avoid that at all costs um, and, and nearly all costs. Cash flow will solve almost every problem you have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, unless you have anything to add on that, I think we can shift over towards the next target. Yeah, sounds next good to topic. me. Um, so boomers. Wouldn't be a Wi-Fi pioneer podcast if we didn't bash on boomers a little bit. But every day, it seems more and more that the, the, the entire generation does not understand the value of money. I like or time, time or money. These are meaningless terms to them. And it's um, just like as an example, you know, I, I live in the town with my in-laws. They will drive three hours to the nearest, co- three and a half hours to the nearest Costco because the toilet paper there is cheaper than in the, the grocery store here in town. It's, it's freaking toilet paper. It wipes your butt, you know, but three and a half hours one way because it's cheaper because you're going to save $5 on a, on a pack of toilet paper. Is that a good use of time and money? And take that example and expand it to every monetary example you can think of. No concept of value, no concept of time. And uh, I really, I thought it was within my own family until I started talking to other people and seeing the whole generation just doesn't, I don't understand how they can have no no concept of it. It's, it's so rare to find a boomer who, under, who understands value of money and time. And the prices they're willing to pay for some ridiculous things, uh, especially around Christmas. I see this, it's just, they just have this need to spend money, this need to waste money on the stupidest, stupidest things. I, I, I keep coming back to this. The boomer generation was America's downfall and the millennials are terrible because they were raised by boomers. <laughs> I, I just could not believe it. They're like America's spoiled generation that then spoiled the, the millennials and the Zoomers. Uh, I just cannot believe how much money they spend on stupid, stupid things as if it were free. Um, and here we're in a situation where, you know, millennials, Zoomers are scrambling to pay for houses that are out of reach, are scrambling to find jobs that don't just condemn them to wage slavery. Um, like these resources are incredibly valuable. And yet boomers will spend all of the family resources uh, and I, it just blows my mind. I, um, I, I, um, anytime I'm talking to a boomer, I just have this feeling. I'm just like, what, how do you not understand anything that's happening in the world? And I, I have this kind of uh, running list of things that I actually would be interested in asking a boomer about. One of them is maybe working on cars. Maybe another one is, you know, fixing something around the house. I, I don't know. What else can you think of? Um, local knowledge of hunting and, and- kind of things like that, hunting, fishing, some, some physical a- a things, but, you know, thinking on it, boomers were the first cable TV generation, like granted their parents, the greatest generation, um, they died watching cable TV, but they were not raised on cable TV. Um, boomers, they had, you know, they, they were in front of the television in the seventies by the eighties cable started coming around by nineties, pretty much every household had cable. So I wonder what is the correlation of the last 30 years of cable television on boomers because I've noticed they all have the same habit, which is by, by five o'clock PM, they've got to be eating dinner and be in front of that TV until 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night, you know, between four and six hours of cable television a day. And that, you know, maybe, maybe it's a stretch, but it's a whole cultural habit of just sitting in front of the, the babble box telling them what they're supposed to think. And I wonder how much of that is has melted their brains. Yep. Definitely see that it's and on the left and the right. It's the same thing. 
they, uh, you just like, is there a single quality thought in their brain? And the other thing I keep running into is they, even if they've started to recognize that they don't understand the world and 95% of my conversations with boomers are some, some version of them saying, I do not understand what's happening. And I say, yes, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. But, but what, where is the disconnect at some point where they're like, okay, I don't understand the world that's happening. And so I need to update my operating system. Why does that not happen? It's, it's, they, they just refuse to change. And so, so many things in society are stuck in the mud because boomers are in charge of them and they hold the resources and they hold the power and they make the decisions. They literally have no idea what they're doing. So just think forward 10, 20 years, we're going through this process where there's going to be a major transition between people who don't know what they're doing and people who do know what they're doing. Tremendous amount of value to any sort of entrepreneur who's capable and takes the risk. Strange. It's kind of like the next 10 years would put us in the 2030s where I'm most optimistic. What a coincidence. Um, It's... I wonder if it's just because boomers are now all over 60 and there's a certain point where your brain will not adapt. So maybe it's not, maybe the whole generation now has passed the point where their brain is able to adapt to what's going on. They're all above 60. They, they can't keep up. And it's this weird arrogance and fear combination where they don't know what's going on. So they don't want to let go of power because they don't know what's going on. They don't look at, uh, anybody below them, they don't look at the millennial generation and say, well, there's people here who know what's going on or Gen Xers. Let me give them power and let them run it. They look and go, I don't even know what these guys are talking about. What is this TikTok thing you're talking about? And why does my phone have a, a, a screen on it and look like a TV? I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to keep doing things my way and give nothing. <laughs> great point. And it just reminded me of a great point that you made in a prior podcast, which is boomers were the last generation where you could just uh, graduate high school and kind of just do the same thing and be the same person for 30 years and live a happy middle-class life working at the factory or with your union job or whatever. You didn't ever have to adapt. You didn't have to self-educate. You just kind of like showed up and we're fine. And now we're in a situation where each generation can't be renewed. You can't, it's not enough to just be renewed by the next generation. Each generation within their lifetimes has to go through two, three, four, five fundamental changes, adaptations, updates to their personal operating system in order to be competitive. And the boomers just never, never understood that, never had to be in that situation. And now they're past the point where they are able to update. And so it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And to a large degree, it's like you said, when a boomer says, I don't understand, you just say, yes, you don't try to explain to them. Don't waste the words. Um, And you have to, for the next 10 years, while they're still in the way, uh, I I have to be careful how I talk about boomers now. I just earned myself a seven day suspension for Twitter for being a little too blunt. So while boomers are still obstacles to progress, I'll I'll phrase it that way. You have to know how to manage them. So when I leave the house for any type of task, that's not a luxury task. I, uh, when I'm calculating the time, whether it's working at my farm or doing, um, anything outside the home, I call it the boomer factor. How many boomers am I going to encounter? And what is my time penalty for encountering those boomers? And it, it, it's usually about a 30 minute penalty per boomer. Um, and I like, this is no exaggeration. I'm not kidding here. So if I have to go perform a 30 minute task at the farm and I know I'm going to run into uh, a neighbor or even my own in-laws who I love them. They are great people, but I know if I'm going to 
be dealing with them in any kind of uh, interaction, that's a 30 minute penalty. So I factor that into my day. It's not 30 minutes in and out. It's now one hour in and out because I got that penalty. If I have to go down to the feed store, who's you know owned by a local boomer, that's a 30 minute conversation I'm not getting out of. So I'm not going to the feed store. I'm buying a couple bags of feed in and out in five minutes. It's 35 minutes. And that's just a couple examples. Those are just things I've learned to adapt um, and how to navigate. I also know I'm learning how to steer conversations with them and steer away from certain conversations and going down rabbit holes um, and not engaging. You, you, know, you always feel like you have to engage in certain conversations. Instead, you got to just know how to put certain things at an end, especially when they start talking about, you know, the magic box and, and you know, Fox News and CNN or whatever else. Like once they start going political, you've got to have your own way of ending that conversation early because it's just a rabbit hole with no end. How do you how do you actually manage business deals with boomers? This is a huge problem I have. Um, so the two businesses I purchased, uh, I, the two IRL businesses, both came from a boomer, and it was one of them was desperate enough to sell that we were able to negotiate the price. The other one was willing to die or run the business into the ground before taking a penny less than his asking price. And we we talked about this in the last one. Basically, you have to look at the price and understand that sometimes you do not have negotiating power. And I know any sales guy listening to this probably just lost his mind. You always have negotiating power, right? Or you walk away from the deal. Well, if you want that business, if you want that property, if you want what they're selling, you have to ask yourself, is it worth their asking price? Because if they're not desperate for money, they're not going to let it go. They would rather, you know, they get a, a dollar price in their head, a number in their head, and they, they just dig in their heels. So you have to just say, can I make money off of this price? Is this going to, you know, do I have a good return on investment on this? Can I grow this beyond what they're doing? Can I modernize and make their asking price a, a better multiple after I've had a year of running running this operation or not? Um, and that's how you have to value it because, you know, you're not going to be able to, you may not be able to knock a single dollar off of the price. Um and just, just know that going into it. And that's, that's what makes your decision of, it's not, do I get the lowest price possible? It's, can I make a profit off of this price? Um, that's my, that's my take. Yeah. I, you really nailed it. I'm, I'm working on an acquisition right now where the person selling the business just has the boomer mentality. They're gonna, they're gonna crash that thing into the ground. There's nothing you can do to stop that. There's no price that they will accept until it happens. Um, and you know, no price less than their asking price before it happens. Uh, and you can just see that it's, you just gonna have to wait it out. And unfortunately they're going to destroy a lot of capital. I think that's the overarching theme with boomers is you just have to understand that they own a lot of resources and they have a lot of power and they're going to crash it into the ground and we have to somehow pick up the pieces and then, and then rebuild. Um, I don't, I rarely see an opportunity to avoid that process. And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And even, even very quote unquote successful boomers who have, you know, hundred million dollar company, they just, it's so impossible to talk sense into them. Even get this, even, even in the middle of a conversation, we're talking about cognitive dissonance and they're pointing out the cognitive dissonance that they're seeing in the country. They're like, all these people, they, they know it's raining and they can feel the water on their skin and they, and they can see the water rising and, and, and you can tell them a flood's coming and the water's up to their waist and they won't believe you, right? You can show up with the ark and offer them a spot on the ark and they will be like, no, I'm good. And you can be in the middle of that conversation and then propose a solution to them exactly on the terms that exactly with the same themes that you just discussed, exactly with all the same problems that they identified themselves. And yet they cannot 
cannot accept a solution unless it's in their mind that that's the solution. They cannot accept a, a solution that's brought to them externally. Um, I, man, I just don't, I, I rarely see a situation where I can actually prevent a boomer from blowing things. Um, it's, I'm still laughing about your, your time penalty per boomer of 30 minutes. That's actually a perfect point. That's, that's exactly what I need to think of. Anytime I know I'm going to encounter boomer, it's a 30 minute time penalty. And, and I just need to make sure it's at a really low value time of my day. But boomers were the first, um, they were the first spoiled generation in America and you just have to let it pass. Uh, I, I mean, we're in this, this is the first time I'm aware of where the seniors in society don't possess any timeless wisdom. I mean, they may have particular skills, but they don't possess the timeless wisdom that says, this is right. This is wrong. This will work. This won't work. You it's, it's crazy. Now we have a situation where, um, because they don't know what they're doing, they have lots of kids who are driven into libtardness because the, they just reject their parents' ways outright. They think their parents are clueless. Yeah, their parents are clueless, but that doesn't mean libtardness is the answer. So anyway, I'm getting on a tangent here, but it's, I just have, I haven't seen a good solution for it. It's literally, you have to wait for the wreckage. Hopefully you've protected most of the valuable capital so they don't destroy all of it. Um, and then we can rebuild. Yeah. And you know, we're, we're going to kind of shift topic here, but you, you reminded me of something too, not necessarily for boomers, but just, um, you know, talking about cognitive dissonance and cognitive blind spots is, uh, and, and this is a, this is even tangent, it's a hard shift of topic here. How your expertise gives you a blind spot to change or a blind spot in your industry. Like um, an example being people who are really good in the financial sector, uh, investment sector, finance, stuff like that, not understanding the value of Bitcoin because their expertise in finance completely blinds them to um, to this new change, right? They're such an expert in the old ways, they can't comprehend the new ways. Yeah, great point. Are you familiar with that uh, parable about um, the the old old fish passing in uh, the two young fish in water? And uh, I think it's from David Foster Wallace. He had this like address at Fordham University or something. And uh, the uh, the old fish is swimming by the water. Uh, these two young fish, and he says, uh, "One of boys has the water." And uh, the two fish look at each other and they go, uh, "What's water?" It's the same thing. Um, yeah. It, and I I am particularly guilty of this myself. I uh, you know my my background in finance. Um, prevented me from understanding Bitcoin at an engineering level. I interpreted as a I interpreted it as a financial instrument instead of a technology, and because of that, I failed to see it. And what what really burns me is the engineers who didn't know anything about money or finance got it because that's what it was. It was a new technology. They got it. They understood the the engineering principles behind it, and they understood that it was superior to anything else out there. Uh, and it took me. I mean. This was one of my biggest failures in life was I started trying to interpret it as a new form of money um, and or as a new currency, right? And I did it through the lens of existing currencies. And I just totally missed it for a long time. And it was a huge, huge failure. Uh, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that's one example. That's a, that's an easy example for us to get into right now. But you can replace the word Bitcoin and finance with any new emerging technology and industry. Um, people just don't their their biases their expertise creates a bias that makes them not understand the new thing they're saying and that's um the, you know you you definitely know more about bitcoin and the engineering side of it than i do but i'm even starting to pick up on more than i knew a year before and a year before that um and i'm seeing the value of it but i'm also seeing 
like the the lack of value in most of the crypto space and why why the Bitcoin maxis always tell you that Bitcoin is not crypto, crypto is not Bitcoin. Now I'm seeing it as we go through the FTX and uh, um, all the other ones that, that collapsed, Luna and these other uh, Ponzi schemes that erupted in the crypto space and how when, when the Bitcoiners are talking about how 99.9% of crypto is a scam, I get it now because I see, now that I've seen what happened, um, I see that they, they the technology, the blockchain technology is great, but when it's run by people in a centralized manner, it devolves into these scams. Whereas Bitcoin isn't owned by anybody, it can't devolve into a scam. Uh, of course, the limitations are still there that it has to be adopted and used. And that's that's the holdup is people aren't using it as it could be to its fullest potential. Uh, and it doesn't help that the Bitcoin maxis just, they go, well, Bitcoin solves that. Well, it doesn't solve anything if nobody uses it. Oh, but Bitcoin solves that. Yeah, okay, guys, great. Um, it could solve. It could solve lots of problems, but nobody's using it. Therefore, it's not solving it yet. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a future kind of thing. Um, I I think the Bitcoin maxis are hoping to get reach a critical mass where um, where enough people own Bitcoin and are using Bitcoin in their own lives are getting familiar with the technology that they can own it at a personal level. So running their own node, um, that that enables people to start using it. And then, and then people will realize most of the normals will realize it's true value once enough people have started using it, but it's that critical mass that, that they have to get to. And I think that's particularly why they're so harsh about all these other things, because for them, this is, this is a game of all the stakes, right? Separating money from state is, is uh, one of the critical tasks for eliminating or reducing evil in the world and reducing slavery and all that stuff. Um, there's one other point I was going to make there. Uh, oh yeah. So, uh, and this, for all, for as much as I love bagging on VCs, this is one of the few things that I think they, they have figured out is most of the major innovations are not going to come from within the industry precisely because of these blind spots that you mentioned also because of lots of incentive problems that exist in any industry where you can't, question the status quo or you get excommunicated. Um, but uh, VCs particularly understand that most of the great innovations to a particular industry come from outside that industry. And it's got to be someone with a fresh perspective. So that I think that's a pretty common theme. And uh, and we'll see that a lot. Uh, I was going to make one other point about Bitcoin, which is it's one of the few things where I've, every minute I've spent learning about Bitcoin was worth it. There are very few things I can say that about. Um, so any listeners who are interested in our podcast, have not spent much time learning about Bitcoin, absolutely 100% worth it because most of what you're going to see in the news is trying to steer you away from it, right? Bitcoin is freedom money. Everything else is somebody trying to screw you, right? And uh, and guess who owns the media? Guess who owns all of the information that you're getting through cable news? Um, so anyway, uh, every minute learning about Bitcoin is worth it. And I, in particular... Uh, am guilty of not doing that at the time that I should have, or at the time I had the opportunity to, and I missed a huge opportunity. Yeah. And you know, that kind of talking about Bitcoin and how people treat it, right. Kind of leads me into my next thing is you, you see it a lot on Twitter, a little bit on TikTok, but mostly on Twitter, you see so much condensation towards people for not grasping Bitcoin, not grasping new technologies and, and kind of whatever the current new thing is. Um, and of course you see the word NPC being thrown all around and, I, and I'm bad about this too. I definitely, uh, when I see human drones, I, I hit them with a lot of, um, I'm just very condescending to them. And that's, that's the whole Twitter attitude is 
and it's not good. It's not positive. Like you, you want to be welcoming to new people and you want to pull people out of that NPC space as much as possible. You want to bring them into the modern world and just, um, you know, you, you want to encourage Bitcoin use. And this isn't just about Bitcoin. This is everything currently, but with that in particular, like you want to encourage and educate and get people over to your side because without adoption of the new technologies, they're dead in the water. You know, if, if Michael Saylor buys all the Bitcoin, how valuable is Bitcoin? You know, if he's sitting on all 21 million, when 21 million Bitcoins, it's, it's useless because he's got it all. And I, I don't, I don't know at what point he's bought too much because there's gotta be some for the rest of us to use. But aside from that fact, just in general, like how do you deal with normies? How do you deal with the NPC types when you find them in real life? And have you successfully broken anybody out of that mold and actually brought them into the real world to be a real person? Have you done that at all? Yeah, huge topic. And I do want to get back to Michael Saylor because he's kind of a controversial figure in Bitcoin. But uh, the, the second part of your question, which is how do you how do you convert people or how do you figure out who's worth your time? I think most Bitcoiners have given up on trying to convert people. They let people come to Bitcoin when they're ready. And the, the standard, I think the standard is like, they say you have to touch Bitcoin three times before you're ready. Um, and uh, so there's a certain amount of of transformation that each person has to go through before they're ready to hear the truth, just like in any sort of red pill analogy. Um, but there's also just a tremendous amount of condescension, as you, as you mentioned, uh, in amongst people who, uh, have managed to become self-sovereign, um, who have this particular distaste for normies. And like, I'll be honest, I, I, I would consider myself sort of a, um, uh, not a rebel, but, um, definitely a misfit. And even I was an NPC normie up until maybe seven years ago. Uh, and so it, I, of all, like, I have to point at myself first. Um, and I've made that recognition. And what, what was it that allowed me to wake up to it? Well, part of it was just watching the whole Trump episode in 2016 and seeing that he had caught on to something that was, that I was in denial about. Um, but you have to be ready to make that recognition. Uh, and you have to be fluid enough in your understanding of the world to be able to totally invert everything that you believe when you realize you're on the wrong side of the trade. Uh, that's, that's a mentality thing. And so you can look for these particular character traits in people. Some people are much more receptive to truth than others, especially harsh truths. At the same time, I've also noticed that now I'm sort of addicted to harsh truths to the point where it may be destructive and damaging, uh, where I look for the harsh truth as the, the actual answer when sometimes it may not be. But to answer your question directly, how do you find people who are worth converting? I don't think you do. I think you, I think you let them come to you. And you learn to appreciate the things that had to change in their mind before they're ready. And once they've, once they've signaled that they're ready, uh, then you can gently show them what they've been looking for. You don't, you don't tell them this is the solution. You show them, right? And, and I think the easiest example is if you're ever able to show somebody how to use the lightning network to pay for something, very few situations where you can do that, but you can do it. People get it right away, in particular for Bitcoin. Your bigger question is how, you know, in this age where people have to update their operating system and, and get a whole new set of facts rapidly, uh, it's a brutal process. I think you just generally have to orient yourself around people who understand that and have committed to it, even if it's painful. They sort of get this, uh, they get addicted to the self-improvement process. I think that's a really good addiction. That's not a vice. That's, I guess that's how I'd answer that question. Yeah, I, I don't... I ask because I don't have a method of un-NPCing people and bringing them into the real world, but I do have a filter mechanism 
to help me identify people and to help myself, right? So in my personal world, I do not come into contact with advertisements at all. Well, except for Twitter, because they don't allow me to pay to not see advertisements. That's like the sole exception, right? I use the Brave browser. So there's no pop-ups. There's no ads of any kind. I will not use Chrome. I will not use um, Edge or anything else that has ads on it. Like that's ridiculous. Um, I pay the extra two bucks on Hulu to get no ads. Um, I don't have cable television, right? So when I'm talking to a person, especially if they're my age or younger, and they're like, oh, I have, you know, they, they mentioned something about cable TV. It's like, yeah, I'm done with you. Cable TV is like the the most self-degrading form of entertainment. How can you sit through a television show or a movie where every five minutes it stops for commercials? That's maddening now. This is 2023, folks. You should not be seeing commercials on your TV show. Um, you know, I will not. So things like that. Uh, when people say that they use terrestrial radio over any of the music apps, when they don't pay the extra three to five, maybe 10 bucks to be commercial free, you know, whether it's be for YouTube, Spotify, whatever, name your app. But if there's a cheap option, I mean, what, what the hell is 10 bucks? You know, coffee costs more than that in most of your, these cities. Pay the 10 bucks a month so that you don't have to be subjected to the, these advertisements that melt your brain. That's one, one uh, filter I have is just what is your exposure to marketing and advertising? That's an easy one. For, um, you know, and then other things like, are you texting me on an open text message app or are you reaching out to me through something like Signal or a secure app? I know that these apps aren't 100%, but it's a measure of protection. Are you using a secure and encrypted email or are you using Gmail? You know, a Gmail is the normie email. Um, Google reads your freaking emails. Why would you use it? So things like that. Those are things that uh, tell me whether or not you actually care about what's going on in the world or are you just talking out your ass? That, that's part of my NPC film. Yeah, great point. And man, I, I just an endless list of things that we have to stay current with. So it's it takes a lot of work. Right? I mean, we're now entering the period where work matters. Right? You and Bitcoiners love to talk, talk about proof of work as like indication that you've you've earned what you have and separating you from the people who just expect it to be spoon fed or or have their hand held their entire life. Yeah, you you definitely have to surround yourself with people who are purposefully making choices to be self sovereign, to be responsible for the things that happen in their life, take accountability. Um, I was going to mention that uh, Michael Saylor thing. I, I'm not sure yet how I feel about Michael Saylor accumulating a whole ton of Bitcoin. Yeah, I get it that he recognized the value of Bitcoin. He had the balls to to um, dedicate a tremendous amount of his corporate balance sheet and personal balance sheet to it and take a whole lot of heat for it. And he's been red-pilling, orange-pilling people left and right about Bitcoin. However, paper Bitcoin is a major problem. Uh, Bitcoin was not meant to be paper. Bitcoin was meant to be self-custody. Uh, a reachable by and controlled by individuals, not controlled by things that are easily captured by the government. That could be a major problem in the future is if a whole bunch of companies adopt Bitcoin. Yeah, great. That may be, you know, the, the Bitcoiners may laud that as like, oh, wow, we've almost reached hyper Bitcoinization. But at the same time, man, that makes it really, really accessible to the government and the government hates Bitcoin. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's part of the thing is, yes, Bitcoin could solve lots of problems. You know, that's the big joke. Bitcoin solves that. But it only solves it if it's used in that manner. It only solves it if uh, it's not corrupted. Um, but if people corrupt it and don't use it the way we want we want to use it, then it doesn't solve the problems. So that's why I'm optimistic about Bitcoin. Um, but I'm not 100% certain of it. You know, I've put money into it, but I don't put all my money into it because 
we're relying on people not to corrupt it. And that's, that's our job as you know, the, the holders of Bitcoin and the ones who want to use it in the way it was intended and even in the ways we haven't thought of yet. It's our job to educate people about that and encourage that adoption. Because if, if mega corporations buy it all up, you know, and we're, there's a handful of us left with, with partial Bitcoins or, you know, there's only ever going to be 21 million and a million of it's already been lost. So effectively, there's only 20 million. If the corporations own 19 million, Bitcoin has no value to us. There's not enough to go around. That's the end of it. So it, it, it can be corrupted. It absolutely can be corrupted. So that's what we have to bear in mind and watch out for. So I think this is particularly useful for our audience because our audience is probably skewed towards small businesses. Uh, and those those are the people who we need to adopt Bitcoin. If you can go source local meat and pay Bitcoin, if you can source your vegetables and pay Bitcoin, if you can pay your babysitter in Bitcoin, uh, that makes all the difference in the world. Mega corporations, particularly public, publicly traded corporations owning Bitcoin, I just don't see the value, to be honest. The real value is an enabling person-to-person P2P transactions on a small scale uh, so that we can be in control of the quality of our lives and the government does not interject itself in those transactions. Uh, so to the extent you can, coffee shop, encourage them to uh, to adopt a, a lightning wallet. Um, especially if you're in small towns, I feel like these things could really matter. And oh my gosh, I mean, talk about a great way to to build the resilience of your town if you're one of the first towns to convert over to P2P payments in Bitcoin over the Lightning Network, that would be amazing. Yeah. And the, I mean, the major holdup to that, it's not even getting people to, to download the Lightning Network and get up on the technology. It's the volatility, right? People who bought Bitcoin in the last two years are looking at that $69,000 all-time high and saying, well, once it gets back to that and I'm no longer negative, I'll go ahead and start spending it. Well, if you're holding an asset, that today can buy me a cup of coffee, but tomorrow might buy me two cups because it goes up. Well, I'm going to hold it. And if you're the business and somebody's willing to pay you in an asset that might depreciate by half tomorrow, they're not going to accept it. It's it's it needs to settle, and it does. Like I don't care at this point if it settles higher or lower than when I bought. It just needs to settle because it's why would I spend something today that can go up or down by twenty percent tomorrow? And why would I accept payment in something that might depreciate by 10, 20, 30% in a single day or week? That is the major holdup to it being used as a currency, in my opinion, that it needs to finally settle at some value marker. And awesome point. Yeah, you nailed it. This is this is exactly what people need to pay attention to. So how do you think about Bitcoin as an asset versus Bitcoin as a payment system? Um, and if you're accumulating wealth in Bitcoin, yeah, you have a tremendous amount of volatility. That's got to be long-term savings. That can't be stuff that you're that you're needing to pay for food in the next few days. But the great thing about the Lightning Network is it allows fiat payments or, or fiat denominated payments on Lightning Rails. So you can hold a significant amount of your near-term spending wealth in dollars, and you can use the Lightning Network to pay somebody effectively in dollars. You just don't even see that the back end, it goes through the Bitcoin network. That's the magic of the Lightning Network. You don't have to, quote unquote, pay in Bitcoin. You don't have to price in Bitcoin. You just use Bitcoin Rails to enable a darn near free uh, instantaneous transaction over the Bitcoin network in dollars. You know, and you you mentioned this, I think, in our very first podcast. I'm, I I made notes and then I never followed up. So that's definitely something I'm going to have to do in the next few weeks is not just 
get myself hooked up onto the lightning network, but actually find some places that use it and just start using it. Even if I buy, I hate to say it like this, but even if I buy something I don't need just for proof of concept, because for me personally, it doesn't work to, for you to say, Oh, lightning network, you can do this. And that. I need to do it and see the transaction happen all the way through. Um, it was like the very first time I transferred Bitcoin from an exchange to a wallet. And then from that wallet to somebody else, I was like, this was like 10 minutes. I just moved a lot of zeros in 10 minutes. Whereas if I had done this through the bank, it would have taken me two weeks and they probably would have screwed something up. Like that was huge for me to see it. You could say all day long that you could transfer a hundred thousand dollars in Bitcoin to your friend in a matter of seconds, but to actually do it and then to do a wire transfer of the same amount and see how long it takes. That's the eye opener. So I'm definitely going to follow through on that and I'll, I'll follow up with a tweet thread as well to explain it once I've done it. So the, the thing that really is enabling Bitcoin's growth is are these really user-friendly <clears throat> apps like Strike that allow you to use Bitcoin without understanding Bitcoin, without quote-unquote believing in Bitcoin, right? But to buy and hold Bitcoin, you have to have done a fair amount of homework to really understand it, to hold it through the volatility, to believe in it long-term. Those are two separate things. You can use Bitcoin without believing in Bitcoin because of the tools that are being built right now through the Lightning Network. And the sooner you can get people to just play with it, to use it as a payment system, they'll start to realize, oh my gosh, I can pay, quote unquote, in dollars. Um, they don't need to see the backend Lightning or the backend Lightning Network that runs on you know, Bitcoin Rails. They can pay, quote unquote, in dollars instantaneously. And now they don't need banks. Once they see that, then they'll start going, okay, I get Bitcoin. I believe in Bitcoin. I want to buy Bitcoin and hold it as an asset. That's a totally separate thing. But to get them to start using it is actually pretty easy and straightforward if you can get people to just play with it, it makes sense. Yeah, and that's that actually kind of brings you back around to how you be a successful entrepreneur, right? Um, people don't want to understand every single thing. All right, guys, uh, quick apology. We had another interruption. This happened last podcast too. So let me finish the thought we were just in and then kind of move on. Sorry if this... Uh, doesn't flow as smoothly as it could. Anyways, we were talking about Lightning Network, and basically the final thought on that was uh, entrepreneurship in general. You are solving a problem for people. And with Bitcoin in particular, if you if you can get people to use Bitcoin without understanding it, you'll get more people using it. Uh, in a perfect world, in our little utopian world, we always understand everything we're doing, and we are our, our own experts. But in the real world, that's largely what a lot of business is, especially any type of service or information business is. I'm the customer, the consumer is offloading expertise to you. So the Lightning Network is one example of Bitcoin doing that. But uh, let me give you a completely different example. Look at um, look at the fitness community. Look at fitness Twitter. People like uh, Alexander Cortez or uh, Bowtie Docs, right? They're the two big fitness Twitter guys and they're selling uh, workout programs and diet programs and everything else to help you get in shape. They explain, if you go through their sub stacks and their Twitters, they explain things to immense detail. I guarantee you most of their customers read enough of that to go, these guys know what they're talking about. Now I'm going to buy their program and I'm just on Monday, I'm going to lift these weights on Tuesday. I'm going to lift the, whatever weights they tell me, I'm going to do the exercises. They tell me people don't, they don't have enough hard drive space to be an expert in every single thing. 
Some people, you know, really high IQ people can do that. Normal people, they've got to offload something. So that's they go to doctors for for health advice. They go to a mechanic to fix their car. They go to these these guys on Twitter, or they, these, these fitness Twitter guys to give them an exercise program. If you are an expert in a field, you can sell that expertise in a form of a service or a, an information product. Put out enough information out there so that people know you're credible. And then they're going to stop thinking about it. And they're going to go, this guy knows what he's talking about. I'm going to pay him. Now, you see where that goes wrong. Obviously, you got a lot of people paying financial advisors, and they're just getting poorer by, by doing that, right? But uh, insert, but that's how people operate. They're going to pay you for your expertise. So think about that. If you have expertise, you can ex- if you can offload somebody's ability to have to do the research, if you can do the research for them and present it to them, they will pay you for that. So that's just um, kind of my closing thought on that. Yeah, the, the magic of the bowtie jungle is that it attracts a particular type of person, a particular type of competence. There's a vetting process. Um, there's a screening process. It's, it's not just for anybody. You have to earn your stripes. There's no participation trophies. But because of that, now suddenly, if you're credible in the jungle, there's a lot of people who are going to rely on your expertise. And that's really important for being able to manage yourself and your life in this brave new world where you have to know everything, right? There's no way that we can know everything about everything. Uh, so we do have to outsource it to credible people. It just turns out the centralized institutions, government, big corporations, they were terrible intermediaries of that process. Person-to-person interactions with credible, motivated, talented people, that's where the magic is. Yeah, exactly. Um, which kind of just leads me to optimism for 2023. A lot of people really, really got beat up in 2022. Um, it's not just the stock markets that lost. A lot of businesses got hurt. Um, people are starting to get cut from their jobs. Like we're going into a hard economic time. So there's a lot of negativity coming out of 2022. I'm optimistic for 2023 and and, and I'm optimistic, not, well, not for everybody, right? This is going to be brutal for, for anybody who's not our listener, for anybody who's not, uh, in the small business, Wi-Fi work from home mindset, but, uh, if you're going to stay in that corporate wage slave job, you're going to 2023 is going to be brutal. We got, you know, we might have inflation, we might have deflation. That's not really my expertise, but it's not going to be easier. So why am I optimistic? Because you saw what happened in 2022. You can look back at the last year and go, all right, we got, I got my ass kicked. Now it's time to buckle down and start a business. Start building something. Um, and. I'm seeing a lot of people, they're asking, like, they just don't know what to do. They don't know how to monetize themselves, right? Well, I can't answer that for you. I can't tell you what to do because I don't know you. But somebody's currently paying you for something. That's that's your starting point. Can you turn this? Can, can you monetize that? You know, your your passions, your hobbies, that's probably not the route to go, to be honest. You know, look, hey, one of my hobbies, one of my passions is is uh, hiking and hunting and, and farm animals, right? Or uh, uh pack animals. I got pack llamas and pack goats. If I can monetize that, I will. Um, and there, yes, there are guys who monetize that, but it's, it's not something you, it's not, it's not that easy. Let's put it that way. So I'm not making, I'm not going to make money off my goats. That's just not going to be a thing, but I got, I, I'll make money other ways. My point is don't get wrapped up in your hobbies and your passions. Look at what people pay you to do. And if you're really young and nobody's paying you to do anything, cause you simply have no skills, well, this is the time to develop some skills. You're going to have to work for somebody for a while. Learn cyber. If you are any way um, inclined towards technology, learn cyber uh, and digital marketing. I would say cyber first because cyber is going to be huge going forward. But And then learn some digital marketing to go with it. Um, and if you are just not 
inclined towards computers, get into the trades, go apprentice with somebody, go work for somebody who's doing a trade because it, there's nobody doing it. Nobody young. All the farmers are over 60. All the mechanics are over 60. All the plumbers are over 50. All the carpenters are over 50. There's no young people in these industries. Get in them. Um, we Yes, we are Wi-Fi pioneers, right? We're work from home. That's what we advertise. But you, you hear it a lot. There's money to be made in the trades as well and in IRL business. And there's a, a, there's a hybrid process of merging IRL and Wi-Fi. Get started with something. Either monetize your current skills or go earn some monetizable skills. But get started. 2023 can be can make or break you. And please be on the side where it makes you. Absolutely. That's, that's my closing thoughts for that. I, I wish somebody had said that to me when I was starting out. I wish somebody had said those exact words to me because I went the hard path. And I wish I had gone through the trades. And I wish I had started small trades businesses and scaled them. Uh, that's there's, there's so much there. Um, but yeah, I, one other thing I want to bring up is, um, if anyone in our audience is technically a boomer, don't be offended. Uh, you're not who we're bagging on. Um, you're actively making decisions to improve your life, to take personal responsibility and to learn how to be self-sovereign. When we talk about boomers, yeah, that's technically a generation, but we're actually talking about, about a mentality, a mentality that refuses to adapt to to be capable in the new world. And there are plenty of quote unquote millennials, you know, who are actually a boomer mentality or have a boomer mentality. They're working for big corporations, government, etc. If you're a, a boomer by generation, but you're here listening to us, you are not the boomers we're talking about. <laughs> you're doing the right things. And yeah, things have been difficult for the last few years. People with real principles definitely have taken a beating. But if you've got breath in your lungs, you are not out of the fight. In fact, if you're listening to this, you're on the right track. And even better, you're on the verge of massive success. These are your people. These are winners. Winners. Just get to work. Well said. So that's where we're going to wrap it up. Uh, I want to wish everybody a happy new year. Good luck in your 2023 adventures. We definitely want to hear from you and what you're doing. Uh, you can always reach out, comment to us on Twitter uh, at Wi-Fi Pioneers. Also, just a standard disclaimer, nothing we say is financial advice. You do have to do your own research. Um, and with that, have a good new year and we will talk to you guys next week.